will rise, and that is the great hope. Christ is risen, and so shall we. We come this morning, let me, uh, one more housekeeping item, one more family business that we need to conduct, and it is to remind you that next Sunday morning we do have a congregational meeting here uh, during the Sunday school hour, so at 9.30. It is an important congregational meeting in the life of the church, probably the most important meeting we've had in over 10 or 12 years. It's the meeting at which we will, the, uh, the uh, move team and the building team will be presenting to you the, the fruit of their labors for the last probably eight, nine months where we have engaged an architect and we have sat down and done the hard work to look and see what we could build and what it would cost to build and what it would look like and where we would go. And so we have um, you know, a fuller, clearer vision. We have uh, floor plans and elevations and renderings of uh, proposed building on the property. Um, we have cost analyses and, and uh, other things to present in terms of how we uh, hope to see that God would do this in our midst. And so we really believe that God has given us that piece of property. We really believe he said now is the time. And so your leadership wants to bring this to you in a full sense next Sunday morning. Um, there will be an opportunity about a week later on a weeknight, and we'll make that very clear where you can come and take a closer look and ask more questions and delve down. We don't want to rush it. But on May the 3rd, the plan is to have another congregational meeting on Sunday morning to vote to go ahead and market and sell this building and to begin to move ahead on the plans to build on the property. Um, we already have a church who wants to give us earnest money and to buy this building. So there's, there's someone that God has already raised up before we've even thought about it. And so they're just waiting for us to say, yes, we want to do it. And they are already talking as a congregation about how they've raised the money to do it. So I believe God has gone before us. It is exciting. And I would say this, if you are a member of this church, as your pastor, I'm asking you to come next Sunday morning at 930 and be here for that meeting. If you're with us this morning and you're visiting and you have the slightest interest in what we're talking about, I would invite you to please come. It is an open meeting, and we would love to have you come and to participate and see as God moves us forward. This morning we are in Matthew chapter 28. Verses 1 through 10. Hear then the word of God. Now after the Sabbath, it was toward the dawn of the first day of the week, and Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, and an angel of the Lord descended from heaven, and he came and he rolled back the stone, and he sat on it, and his appearance was like lightning, and his clothing was as white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled, and they became like dead men. The angel said to the woman, to the women, do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified, but he is not here, for he has risen, and he has said, come and see the place where he lay, and then quickly go and tell the disciples that he is risen from the dead, and behold, he is going before you to Galilee, and there you will see him. See, I have told you this. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and with great joy. They ran to tell the disciples. And behold, Jesus met them. And he said, greetings. And they came up and they took hold of his feet and they worshipped him. And Jesus said, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. 
there, they will see me. Pray with me. Father in heaven, we have gathered this morning on this Resurrection Sunday to turn our hearts to Jesus. Father, would you unveil our eyes and let us see the risen Christ afresh. May we behold him in all of his power and all of his glory that in knowing him and in seeing him, our lives would be overwhelmed by his presence and his glory, by his life brought back from the dead, that he might give it away freely to those who would believe in him. Lead us to faith. We ask and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you ever <clears throat> experienced an earthquake? I can't say that I have. There are times when you hear there has been one and you wonder, did I feel that? You know, there was, I heard there was one. We're told in the beginning of the passage that on this, this particular Sabbath day, Resurrection Sunday, as the Marys were heading, in verse 2, behold, there was a great earthquake. I don't know, I've never been in an earthquake, but I've seen a lot of videos of people in earthquakes things shaking. It's one of those things that it's really unsettling because there are a few things in this world that we, that we think are firm. There are a few things in this world we think are, you know, the bedrock on which we build things. But when, the, when terra firma shifts, it's like anything can shift. Anything can change. I mean, it's, it's, it's very unsettling with that on which you build your buildings shifts and takes them down. It can be a very terrifying thing. Have you ever stood close to a lightning strike? It's another one of those powerful events. I've been close enough to have felt the hair stand on your neck. You know, we had our house last year was hit, and it was one of those things you can almost physically feel the power. You know, that flash of dazzling, brilliant, liquid silver. told, behold, there was a great earthquake and an angel of the Lord descended and he came and his appearance was like lightning. I don't know if, they, if his appearance was like lightning as he, as he descended to the earth, like they, they saw the descent of an angel and it was like, you know, or whether he just was there and it says that his clothes was as white as snow, and, but his appearance was what, like lightning and so his clothes was so white it was like snow, but the actual angel himself, trans, the, his glory transcended the clothes that he was wearing and he appeared like lightning translucent, glorious, the descent of an angel, it's a supernatural event that's going on that is, a, that is being accompanied by these traumatic natural occurrences, the angel comes, the earth shakes, the massive stone door is moved, in verse 2 there was that quake and the angel of the Lord descended and he came and he rolled back the stone sat on it. Now, it's a stone as they sealed the tomb with a large round stone like a door, and they would roll it in front of it. It would take two or three men to move. The angel moves it and sits on it. The earth shaking, angel descending, the vision of lightning, the moving of the great stone, all of these things are as miraculous as they are, as important as they are in their own right. Only mark and point to another supernatural event that has happened somewhat quietly and silently and almost secretly. And these things mark, they let them know that something even greater has transpired. They took everyone by surprise. It literally took everyone by surprise. 
It was the resurrection of a man from the dead. It was a dead man leaving his tomb. Not to re-enter this life and to live again in this mortal flesh, but a man who rose from the dead on the other side of death into a life that never dies. And so the Romans, they had posted guards. In the end of the last chapter, if you look back just a couple of verses, we're told that the Jewish leadership was afraid that they were going to steal the body, that they were going to come and do something. So in chapter 27, verse 63, it says that they, they remembered how the imposter, that is Jesus, when he was still alive, had said that after three days I will rise again. And so they, the, the Jewish leadership remembered that Jesus said that he would rise in three days. And they knew enough to ask the Roman power structures to give us some guards to seal the tomb and guard the tomb and make sure that the disciples don't pull a fast one and come and steal the body and start making false claims. So guards have been posted to prevent this kind of thing. They didn't believe in Jesus. They didn't believe he was actually going to rise from the dead. They just didn't trust the disciples. And they just wanted to make sure and keep, you know, keep control of this situation from getting out of hand, from getting any worse than it was with this pretender. These guys were surprised half to death. Right? These are guys that were scared witless. As the angel of the Lord came and he descended and the earth shook and it was like lightning and his appearance was like lightning. His clothes were white as snow and it said for fear of him the guards trembled and they became like dead men. Scared witless by these events. I said it's pretty traumatic. I mean the earth shaking, lightning flashes that are close at hand. This, This angel, the stone moves and these guys don't know what to do. They're almost in shock. Surprised. By the resurrection, right? Surprised by what's taking place. But interestingly, it also reveals to us not only that the guards are surprised by it, the Jewish leadership are surprised by it, but the women reveal how confused and dejected the the disciples of Jesus are. That they really didn't expect this either. How weak their faith was. Certain disciples remembered what Jesus said. He was, it was certain that the disciples remembered what, the, what Jesus said. I mean, if the Jewish leadership remembered that Jesus said that he would rise in three days, surely, surely the disciples remember him saying that. I guess they had trouble believing that. Because you got the two Marys in verse 1. Now after the Sabbath, it said toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to the tomb. Other places tell us very clearly that they bore spices and other things to anoint and, and, and prepare the body for a permanent interment, you know, a permanent burial to spend a long time there. They came to complete the final preparations of the body. It was a final act of love and devotion and service to Jesus, the one who had been crucified. But here's the thing. They fully expected to find a body. And they fully expected to finish preparing it to spend a long time in the tomb. They didn't think he was going anywhere. So they wouldn't have wasted their time and their spices. Right? It seems like they it seems like they should have been going to post lookouts. Right? If the Romans went and posted guards to make sure they didn't steal the body, they should have gone to post lookouts. 
to see how this thing was going to go down. Or have gone ahead on to Galilee, as we're going to see here in a minute, because he told him he would meet him there. But it seems like there ought to have been people waiting for him in Galilee and some others posted by the tomb, like waiting to see Jesus do what he said that he would do. Certainly they remembered. It seems like, though, that no one was more surprised than the disciples themselves, the Marys and the disciples, to find the tomb empty. An angel wants to show him the empty tomb. Right, so in verse 5, it says, the angel said to the women, don't be afraid. For I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He's not here. He's risen. As he said, come and see the place where he lay. Right? In fact, the, the stone was rolled away, not so that the angel let Jesus out. Right? We need to understand that. Jesus didn't need the angel's help to get out. And we know that Jesus had a proclivity post-resurrection, in his resurrection, that he didn't really need doors. And some of the stories that follow, the door was not a hindrance to Jesus getting out. The angel didn't open the door to let Jesus out. He opened the door to let the disciples in so that they could see with their own eyes that the tomb was empty and that he was not there. Check it out for yourselves. The angel wants them to look. They want them to confirm his word because he is a messenger. He wants his word confirmed because he has some important things to tell them. So he wants them to look in the tomb first so that they fully hear what he's saying. Because the door's still shut, there may linger that doubt. The door's open and it's empty. And so the angel tells him, he has several things to tell them. And the first one is what angels almost always tell people when they encounter him, right? In the beginning of verse 5. Right, he said, the angel said to the women, don't be afraid. It's almost always the first words out of an angel's mouth, and I think it's because they're frightening. Right? They're powerful. You know, his clothes are not only wet, but his appearance of lightning. He's descended. The earth shook when he showed up. You know, he's rolling back stones and sitting. You know, there's this, this being, and so he's, he's a bit frightening. And he tells them that you don't need to be afraid. Yes, he comes in power, and he comes from all power. But you don't need to be afraid. This power is here for you, not against you. And even though you don't have enough faith and understanding to expect an empty tomb this morning, I'm not here to condemn you. I'm not here to chastise you. I've got news for you. Right? He's here as, a, as an, angel, uh, uh, an angelic messenger to proclaim to them good news. And it's the beginning of the gospel in all of its fullness and all of its clarity. They hear it first from an angel. Right? And so in verse 5, he says, not only come and take a look, don't be afraid, but he says, I know that you seek Jesus, the one who was crucified. I know why you're here. You're here because of your unbelief. You're here looking for a dead man. The one who was crucified. It was a bad death. It was a torturous death. It was a complete death. You're here looking for Jesus. You're looking for a dead man. But you know what? That's why I'm here. Because he's not dead. And before you panic, he's not a wall. The body, he's not a wall. He's not missing. You know, it, it, the Romans didn't steal the body. The tomb is empty, and that might probably be the first thing they think. You know, oh, ye of little faith. The Romans took him. They've been mean about this whole thing. 
before you panic, before you jump to conclusions, there's, <clears throat> there's an important thing that you need to know. The most important thing perhaps you need to know. He's not only not here, he is risen. He is risen. He is risen indeed. Christ the Lord is risen today. Just like he said he would. And so he's telling them. He's not here for he is risen. Jesus, the crucified one who you look for in the grave, is alive. This is the essence of Christianity. Upon it, it all rises and falls. A living Christ, a living Savior. Someone who has conquered the dead, conquered death, conquered the grave, and has gone before us. It's the essence and the core of everything that we believe. And this news comes to them like a bolt, another bolt of lightning, and the brilliant flash of this knowledge that comes upon them. You know, when, when, when the lightning on a dark night comes down, and, it, and it, for just a second it illumines things, right? It lights up the night. For just a second you get glimpses of, of what was hidden in the darkness. And with this news flash, He is risen. He is alive. And this is news to them. Right? This, is, this is penetrating for the first time. That he really did rise from the dead. And he is alive. Jesus Christ, this one whom they followed for all these years. This, in this brilliant flash of understanding, they begin to glimpse the implications if Jesus really is alive. really risen from the dead, our mind starts to race. What does this mean? What does it mean? If this man conquered death, if this man rose from the dead, if he really did come forth from the tomb, if death could not hold him, death in vain forbids him rise. Hallelujah. What does that mean? What does that mean about life and about death? (laughs) About who we are, about what this world is, about what else is there and about what's next and Everything that Jesus had been talking about for all these years. Because if this crucified person is no longer there and the grave is empty and Jesus lives and it changes everything, the whole world tilts. But death has been conquered and the Son of God lives and a door to a bigger reality has opened world of possibilities comes flooding in. And the very first implication in the flash of this knowledge that Jesus lives, that Jesus is alive, the first implication that comes flooding to us is that makes all other implications possible is the fact on which all others depended. Jesus is who he said he is. I mean, that's huge. He'd been, making, he'd been saying some crazy stuff. We've talked about that before. Jesus, in those three years, has been saying some crazy things, right? Talking about who he is, right? I am, the, I am the light of the world, you know, and anyone who believes in me. I am the bread of life. Anyone who feeds on me lives. You know, I am the door. Anyone who enters through me lives, right? I am the resurrection and the life. You who believes in me, he'd been saying crazy stuff. And you know what? If the man actually walks out of the tomb, 
if he actually rises from the dead in power and glory, he is who he said he is. And this is what Romans 4, it's there in your bulletin under the second point. Romans 1, 4, Paul opens his great treatise trying to unpack the implications of who Jesus is and what he has done and his resurrection. In verse 4, he says this. Jesus, he was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness. By his resurrection from the dead, he is Jesus. And then we'll throw on Christ the Lord. Right? This Jesus who walked with us as a man and taught us, he is the Christ. He is the Messiah. He is God's Savior. He is the one whom God has promised and sent to relieve our suffering and save us from our sins. He is Christ. He is the Lord. He is the King. He is the risen one. And it is this resurrection declares it all to be true. It shows forth God's own testimony to His Son. Only God can raise the dead. And everything that Jesus has said, it was His own Father, God Almighty, who testifies to the truth and power of it. So He not only is who He says He is, but then the second implication that follows right on it, and we've already said it, is simply that. Everything He said was true. And He said a lot. You can go back and read your Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. All that Jesus said, all that Jesus taught, all that he taught about the world, all that he taught about who God is, all that he taught us about our own situation and our sin, all that he taught us about himself, all that he taught us and as he, as he called us to, to put our faith in him and to trust in him. All of these things are true. All of Jesus' miracles had been evidence that his claims were true. And Jesus himself pointed to that. He said that, you know, if you don't believe me, believe my works. Believe the things that I do. I myself have walked on water and fed the thousands and healed diseases and given sight to the blind and made the lame to walk. And all of these things are God's power testifying that I am who I say I am. And then in this moment, on this day, ultimate vindication, the Bible says that he did rise from the dead. He is exactly as Peter declared him on that day when he was asking, who does everybody say that I am? Who do you say that I am? And the answer was, thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. He is who he said he was. Right? Flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you, Peter. My Father in heaven has revealed it to you. That is who I am, the Christ, the Son of the living God. And in this, life is renewed in hope. And for all of us, we need hope. There are two things certain in life, my father used to say, death and taxes. You probably heard that. I don't think you made it up, right? Two things that are certain in life, death and taxes. And if the first one is not as certain as you think it is, the world of possibility opens up. Life is renewed in hope. Whoever believes in him, he says, God so loved the world, he gave his only son, that whosoever should believe in him would not perish, but would have life. And this is, this is the question. This is the human question. Can, if a person dies, can he live again? Or is this it? And when the clock runs out, is this it? Is there any meaning? Is there any purpose? Is there any more? Is there only death and taxes first? 
Do you believe in eternal death? Or do you believe in eternal life? Death's door has been rolled away. Jesus emerges from the graves victorious and he's full of life and he's full of possibility. He is the resurrection. He is the life. There is life in Christ. The reality of his resurrection makes everything possible. And so I pulled together. I mean, this is, this is your entire New Testament. And I have time this morning to kind of walk through the whole New Testament and show you that the New Testament is nothing but unpacking the implications of the fact that Jesus is who he said he is, that everything he said was true, and it changes everything. That's what the New Testament is all about. I just pulled four or five scriptures together in terms of life, in terms of this, what is so central to this day in this celebration. John 6, 57. This is in the context of Jesus saying, I am the bread of life. And he says this there in your bulletin, John 6. As the living Father sent me, as God has life in himself. And the Father has sent me, he says, I live and have life in myself because of the Father. I derive my life from, from God Almighty. As the Son of the living God, he has, he has put life in me. So as the living Father has sent me, I live because of the Father. And here is the thing. Whoever feeds on me then will also live because of me. The life that I have from the Father, I will share it with you. You too can live. And this whole thing of feeding on me, he's using that image again, that he is the bread of life. And what he means by that is if you put your faith in me, right, in a sense, feed on me by faith. If you know me and love me and walk with me, right, if you are my disciple and you follow me and you, you build your life around me, if you feed on me, he says, you will live, you will derive life from my life. All right, that's 11, John eleven twenty five. Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever it is that believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. John 14, 19, because I live, you also can live. 2 Corinthians 4, 14, he who raised the Lord Jesus, the almighty power of God who demonstrates his own testimony to the identity and the truth and the power of the Son, the God who raised the Lord Jesus, will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you, all who believe in him together, into his presence. So it's not just that Jesus conquered death, but it's the startling and unbelieving reality that he not just conquered death to show his own glory and to demonstrate his power, but that he does it for you and I. He does it for you me. He's opened the door. He has gone before us and opened the door. Did he say, I've gone to prepare a place for you. I've made a way for you. Right? This is the message of the Bible, that there is life in Jesus Christ. It's an eternal life. That means it's not just long and for eternity, but it's the quality of his life. It's the life of God, it's the, it's the life that changes everything, that can transform our hearts, it can transform our relationships, it can set us free from our slaveries, it can bring light into our darkness. It's an abundant life. Jesus said, you believe in me, if you follow me, I will give you life and I will give it to you abundantly, not just then, but starting now. 
I will enter into your life. And you will see me and you will know me and it will change everything. And this is the testimony, 1 John 5. This is the testimony. God has given us eternal life. And this life is in His Son. And it's in His Son to such a degree that whoever has the Son has life. And whoever does not have the Son does not have life. So if you put your faith in Him, He says you too may live. And so in verse 7, he tells them to go and tell the disciples. Right? Then go quickly. Tell the disciples that he has risen from the dead. Go tell them that Jesus is alive. That he'll meet you in Galilee. And then there in Matthew 26, it's that whole statement where Jesus told them not too long ago, you're all going to fall away because of me this night. They're going to strike the shepherd and the the sheep of the flock are going to be scattered. He says, but after I raised up, go before me and meet me in Galilee. He told them they haven't believed him, so he sends an angel, and he sends two women. These two women then become really the first messengers of the gospel outside of the angelic uh, deliverers. These two women become the first messengers of the gospel, the first evangelists. They go to tell the good news of the crucified one is alive. They are the first ones to have the message. And they're full of emotion. They're full of wonder. As they turn, it says, and they run to deliver this message. The one who healed disease. The one who walked on water. The one who calmed the storms. The one who made all of those promises that made us hope. That made us leave everything and follow him. The one who was struck down and crucified. He is alive. He lives. And the grave is empty. And so as they go running full of this motion and full of this wonder, they're running to tell the news to the rest of his disciples. In 9 and 10, Jesus himself intercepts them. He says, behold, Jesus met them on the way and he says, greetings. And they came up to him. And they took hold of his feet. And they worshipped him. Again, Jesus says, don't be afraid. Go and tell your brothers. Go and tell my brothers. Jesus reiterates the message, but this is still the mission and message of the church. It's why we gather. It's why that we go into the community on our community work days to love and to um, preach and to um, take the love and the message and the gospel of Christ out of the doors, out of our building. He says, go and tell the others. It is still the mission and the message. Proclaim that Jesus is alive. Proclaim that he is risen from the dead. Go and tell others I will meet them and they will see me. And they too will know and everything will be changed. He says he will come to you. And you will see him. Not with physical eyes. They they had the privilege of seeing the risen Christ. With, the eye, with their physical eyes, he lays the foundation of the church with men and women who got to see and interact with him. That's not our privilege today. We don't get to see him with, with our physical eyes, but only with the eyes of faith. And he said, blessed are you who have seen and believe, but blessed are those who do not see and yet believe. It's what Peter talks about under your last point in the bulletin, First Peter 1. Peter says this, though you've not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, you believe in him. And in believing in him, you rejoice with a joy that is inexpressible and is filled with glory. 
My friends, this is the response of those who discover that Christ is alive. This is the response. It is the only response possible to rejoice with a joy that is inexpressible. How can you express it? If there is a man who's been risen from the dead and he is full of the life and power of God to give you life and power, not only now but forever, it's inexpressible. The joy, if that is true, and if it's true for me, it is the only response of those who come to know him. We see it in these women as they, they run into Jesus, as Jesus runs into them, as they are running to tell the news that they have heard. And as soon as they see him, we're told that they take hold of his feet. Right, So they're down on their knees, which is where everybody ends up, whether it's an angel or Jesus. They end up on their knees, grabbing his feet and worshiping this one who is dead, and who now is alive. They took hold of Jesus. They grabbed his nail-scarred feet, and they poured out their souls to him. That's the response. If If you have come to see Jesus as he really is, if you have come to encounter a Christ who is alive, you will take hold of him, whether it's his nail scarred feet, and you will pour out your souls to him in worship. If he is who he said he is, the Son of God, the living one who has life in himself and who will share it with you. You cannot see Jesus as he really is and not, not take hold of him in worship. If you haven't taken hold of him by faith, if you have not dropped down at his feet and surrendered yourself to him in worship, I would simply suggest you don't know him. You haven't seen him. You haven't met him. Because when you meet this Jesus, you will worship him. You will give to him all that you have to give. To know this one is to love him. Right? Yeah, that one, to know him is to love him. Right? To know Jesus, there's no other response. If you really have glimpsed him, this is your response. So if you have not taken hold of him in that way, if you have not surrendered yourself in worship, I'm afraid to tell you, you may not know him. You may not have encountered the living Christ. There may be some who are here today who have taken hold of church. You love the music. What's not to love? We love the music. You You may love the people. Again, what's not to love? We love the music. We love the people. We love the traditions. It makes me feel good. I really, you know, church can be a fine thing, and you've taken hold of church. Some have taken hold of doctrine. You believe what the church teaches. You believe what I've said about Jesus. If we made a list of the things, number one, you know, who he is. Number two, the things he said. You know, number three, that he is the son of the living God. Yes, he died for my sins. Yeah, I got a list of things I believe. You know, that's not the same. Taking hold of a list of doctrines. Taking hold of someone who really is alive. Someone who is a living person in a way that you and I don't even know what it is to be a person, someone who truly is alive from the dead, someone who truly is God, someone who truly is someone to be encountered and known and loved and worshipped. And sometimes we take a hold of all the stuff that surrounds him, but we've not yet actually pumped into him in such a way that we surrender ourselves in worship to a Christ who lives and who changes everything for me. And so that is the burning question this morning as these women have encountered him and taken hold of his nail-scarred feet and worshipped him. The question is this morning, have you encountered a living Christ? 
Have you simply encountered all the traditions and the doctrines and the things that surround you? People who discover him. People who encounter him. You know them. Because their lives have changed. Because their lives are different. Because it's the only, the only way. The Bible says that if, if, if you know this one who is pure, then you yourself pursue that purity. If you know this one, it says to, to, to love him is to obey his commands. To know him and to be in his presence is to be transformed by that presence and power. Right? And it says that those who see him as he is begin to become like him. And their lives change. The Bible says it is by their fruit that you will know them. The fruit of a changed life. The fruit of a life that worships. The fruit of a life that follows. The fruit of a life that is becoming more and more like His. The fruit of a life that begins in all of its commitments and in all of its investments and all of its love and satisfaction is poured into this place at the feet of this one. Our hope in life and in death is this one. You know them when you meet them. And you know usually if you are one of them. You may have stumbled in darkness for years. Five seconds can change a life. Five seconds where you encounter a living Christ. A momentary encounter with one who actually lives from the dead and who can raise your soul from the dead in a moment. Deliver you from darkness into his marvelous light. The Song of Solomon, verse 3, chapter 3, verse 4. I think it's in your bulletin. I think this made it. He says this, I found him who my soul loves. And I held him. And I would not let him go. This is what every soul that finds Jesus confesses with every fiber of its being. They love him with all of their heart and with all of their soul and with all of their mind and with all of their strength. They say, I found him who my soul loves. And I held him. And I will not, I will not let him go. And praise be to God, he will not let me go either. Let's pray with me. Father in heaven, we have gathered this morning because you have so loved the world that you gave us your only son. We have gathered this morning, Lord Jesus, that you would endure the cross and scorn its shame for the joy that was set before you, the joy of this gathered throng who claim your name, who know you and who love you. Holy Spirit, we come this morning longing for you to work in our hearts and in our lives, to bring the power of the truth home in us, that we would not take hold of churches or traditions or doctrines or anything else, but only you. Father, if there are any here this morning who have not taken hold of Jesus by faith, I pray today would be the day. The day that they take hold, they find the one whom their soul loves and never let go. We ask, we pray in the strong name of Jesus. Amen.